want to share with you a little bit the chain of associations that uh, went through my mind this evening and then hopefully it'll find its way back to some of the stray thoughts that I had today about that I wanted to um, speak about. Naturally, my mind drifted to thinking about my uh, father-in-law who just passed away. I mentioned it last week to those of you who are here. And I was especially thinking about him again today because a copy of a a beautiful uh, notice uh, that was put in the newspaper in Milwaukee, Wisconsin came in the mail today and I was able to read it and it was a really beautiful description of him and what a bodhisattva he was and uh, bodhisattva meaning someone who had really devoted himself selflessly to the alleviating of suffering of other people. He was a kind of surgeon, uh, orthopedic surgeon, surgeon, and started all these foot and ankle clinics all over the country, and really cool guy, and uh, saw himself as, uh, he used to make some kind of gesture, and I'm, I'll butcher it now by even trying to remember what it was, but as as a flick, as a speck of dust on God's finger, or something, you've probably heard similar um, expressions, and he on one hand, he was a very strong guy with a certain kind of, uh, I think, appropriate pride in what he had done in his life, but yet uh, this with a great humility. But after anyone dies, we wonder what happens to them. Where do they go? Where does he go? What, and, and if he goes anywhere, is where he goes or where he went... Uh, does it at all depend on the way he lived his life and what his life was about? And from my reflections on that open question, because none of us can really know. We can't know. We can only speculate or intuit. And I think it takes, a, I think it takes courage to admit that we have no idea. And anyone that does is, is, anyone that's not willing to do that, you're holding on to some mythology, some belief system. And that may be useful, uh, but for some reason I can't let myself do that. It just does, it's, I'm constitutionally incapable, at least when I can, when I know it, of adopting any view about something I don't know about. Of course, I do that a lot when I don't know it, but... <laughs> But when I'm something around the, so it's an obvious event as my own uh, the cessation or the the end of this life and this body, who knows? Clueless. However, there's something in the Tibetan. This is where the next the next location that my mind went. There's something in the Tibetan tradition. The Tibetan tradition devotes uh, the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism devotes a lot of attention to what happens when we die, and how our death and its aftermath is determined by our past actions, our past karma, our past thoughts, the the ways that we have inclined our mind. Intuitively, it sounds like it's very possible. Again, I don't know. But one thing that they do speak about 
is that each of us, and it's something that I think is quite verifiable in real time, is that each of us in our deepest nature, our true nature, even the very nature of who you are sitting here tonight, before you can think, that our true nature is... uh, what could be described as uh, luminous, brightly shining. It is unborn, it is unconditioned. It is, uh, it is the, the ground of your own being is the, the light of awareness, you could say. And if you recognize this, this light through which you're perceiving right now, this light that, that pervades your highs, your lows, your ups, your downs, your, uh, and, and pervades all ages, this essential nature. It's one way of talking about it. Don't believe what I say, though. But That must be proof. <laughs> Celestial music. It's understood in the Tibetan teachings that whatever this ground, this ground luminosity, this essential luminous nature, that pure consciousness that you are before you think, before you think, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a this, I'm a that, before you refer to your memory and your plans, whatever's there in that immediate and only now experience of being awake, that this is essentially what you are in truth. And any other description of yourself, any other characterization, any other name that you put on yourself is an approximation, a secondhand version, it's a concept, it's, a, uh, it's something that's not, not lasting. For example, I'm, I am my body. That's a very strong view. I am my body. But yet... We can't ever find an eye in the body. And the body seems to get old and die. Uh, And it doesn't seem to do that according to my wish or anyone's will or wish. So that raises some questions about I am the body. Or even I am a man or I am a, a woman. These... Even though this, these gender identities have a certain conventional usefulness, and, but they still, when we close our eyes, we don't know what sex we are. When we're really immediately present, we don't even know. Uh, we don't even know what species we are. All of that relies on our mind, on the secondhand, uh, on secondhand data. I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but... But what we can know in those gaps between our views of ourselves, our ideas, is we can know this kind of bare freshness, this wakefulness, this wakefulness that when we get used to it, it seems to be pervaded with a kind of light and a quality of knowing, of consciousness. And in the Tibetan tradition, this is called, there's a name for it, it's called Rigpa. And this this quality called Rigpa is considered, it's one way of talking about it, it's each of our individual um, 
It's our own individual corner of that ground luminosity that pervades everything. That each of us has our own little miniature version of the ground of being. It's the, and we can all recognize that in our own minds. And where, where this relates to how we live our lives and what happens when it's over is it's understood in the Tibetan tradition that if you have given attention to attention, if you have recognized this, this uh, luminosity, this bare freshness, this wakefulness, this pure awareness that you are, these are all words that don't really quite capture what that is. But if you recognize this in your life, and you see in the course of your life the difference between that direct experience of yourself before you can relate to yourself based on the wor- in the world of concepts or memories, if you can recognize this and see the difference between that moment where you adopt the, you reconnect with the idea, I'm a man, I'm a teacher, I'm in this role, I'm that, all wonderful and useful and conventionally true, but that moment just prior to that, it's that moment when you wake up in the morning before you become yourself, you can begin to recognize that there's, there's something there before yourself. Does this make sense? If you can recognize it in your life and see the difference between that, as I often use that passage from uh, James J. Audubon, I say, if you can, if you can, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. So we can just for a few moments not consult the field guide book and really sense what we are before we can think. Well, if you've done that in your life and you've really seen the difference and you've really devoted yourself to that sense of home, your true home, not your temporary or partial home, home and your identities, they're good while you've... It's great being a man while I'm a man, but it won't last so long. It's great being this, in this role, but I know this role's not going to last that long. It's, ba- it's wonderful being a husband, a father, not going to last that long. Not ultimately a reliable refuge. The Dharma asks us to really recognize that, not to just take it for granted, to constantly contemplate our inevitable passing and the complete uncertainty about when that will be. And to, as one of my teachers, uh, my teacher H.W.L. Punja, he's in his phrase, he once said, I'm hesitant to say this because it can have so many different meanings, but he said, marry the one who won't divorce you. And it didn't, he didn't mean person. Marry that in you which you can't lose. That was never born and never dies. So it's said that if you have familiarized yourself, if you've recognized your, your nature, and this is what happens when one trains one's attention carefully, you begin to see what's self and what's not self. You get to see what's, what's real and what's unreal, what's changing and what may or may not be unchanging.
But if one has recognized this, it's said that at the moment that you die, the moment when the last breath is taken and this body can no longer function, that there is an opportunity. If you have really recognize this luminosity, you will merge quite naturally with the ground luminosity, and it's said that you'll be liberated. If, on the other hand, you follow as you have been habitually, compulsively, neurotically, if you, if you follow the visions that come into your mind, the concepts, the characters, the, the roles, the, the desires, the objects of desire, if you follow those, if you are enticed by the exotic images, repulsed by the ugly images, if you follow the images at all, you will wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, you will be born again into the cycle of, of, um, of suffering. Pretty dramatic uh, contrast between the two, the two um, options available at the time that we pass. Well, it turns out that those two options are continuously available to us in this very life. We can either incarnate again and again and again in our personal stories, in our personal dramas, in our, in our um, obsessions, in our likes, in our dislikes, in our um, just whatever... How, I, I, I wonder, you know, sitting in this beautiful little forest of quiet bodies tonight, how many different mind worlds did you incarnate into? And how much during that, when you were on that ride, dreaming about yourself and your day and where you're going and where you've been, how many of you were mindful, oh, this is a story about somebody. And how many of you, or how many times during the sitting, were you literally incarnated in that dream, believing that it was really about someone who exists? Now, we, I, I would say that we have millions, millions, as a species, we have millions of years of practice living in the, um, the dream of ourselves, in the second-hand version of ourselves. So it's, it's not something we should judge ourselves in any way for being lost, be, being fixated, being captive by, by our minds. Partly, we, we all carry the, the, uh, the, the burdens of, of having been these, our tender beings, having been uh, assaulted verbally, with excess stimulation, with with uh, with very gross and dense and harsh energy from parents and teachers and culture, and there's been there have been so much our our organisms have been so deeply impinged upon that we've we've shut down, and that the vitality that the energy you could say i don't like to use that word too much but that the energy that flows through us are that vital uh, pulse that is life itself 
it has to go somewhere. When we're contracted and tight, when we're wounded, where do you think it goes? It goes like a, like a um, tube of toothpaste. It, it shoots into a, a proliferation of narrative. It leads to a kind of disconnect, a kind of disassociation from a sense of embodied presence. And then we end up very innocently living in the world of our thoughts. But the good news is, I always like to share the good news. The good news is that it is possible to, in the course of our lives, to stem the the tide, to reverse the uh, habitual fixations, and increasingly begin to abide more and more comfortably and with much more confidence in the simple uh, sense of embodied presence, of being here, awake, moment by moment, less defined by the past, less defined by our, our traumas and hurts and our plans and our desires, able to be truly here and at the same time, not just a blank nothing, but incredibly responsive and loving and active and vital and connected. And that option is available every moment. That option is available in every moment where there is enough presence of mind to be able to, um, you could say, choose. When we're lost in one of our fixations, there's nothing we can do except the moment we wake up to plant some kind of wholesome seed. And ideally, it would be a seed of forgiveness, seed of kindness, a seed of mindfulness, a seed of wise intention, some intention to... uh, to stay awake, to stay present. To st- Why would we want to stay present and unplugged? Notice what it's like when you're truly present. It is really difficult when you are truly present to find suffering. I don't mean generally present. All of us know what it's like to be generally present. But to be truly present is to literally step out of the, the world of time and step out of the world of suffering. And it's available because it's always here. That's why every wisdom teaching points to just resting, just stopping, just unplugging right here and now. Noshul Kenpo, who I often quote, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, infinite ocean of spinning, rest in natural great peace. Until we have enough enough, um, discernment about the difference between what it's like to step out of that 
internal drama and what it's like to be in it until we can feel the pain of the contrast, how painful it is to be fixated. We tend not to really embrace and devote ourselves to that, uh, that um, our true nature. We tend to bow to the throne of the past and imposters, our, our personality views, our stories. So for most of us, we need to, uh, to have a really strong glimpse. And that's afforded to anyone who uh, has the inclination, the time, the resources to go on retreat. Retreat is a wonderful way to do that. But not everyone has the conditions in their life to be able to do that. So what really, what really is necessary is, most important, a sincerity of heart. A real, sincere desire. And you notice I use the word desire. Desire is not a bad thing. Wholesome desires lead to less suffering. Unwholesome desires, desires that are just addictions, compulsions, they lead to more suffering. The desire for freedom is the only desire that no other desire can fulfill. It's the only one that is worth giving your life over to completely. So given that some people, this is kind of a preamble, maybe a long one, but it's a preamble or a a prelude to uh, a thought that I was having today based on a conversation I had with an old friend. But I thought that I would propose, since many of you are householders living very full daily lives, of somehow bringing that same commitment that one can fulfill much more easily on doing long practice periods, but to do some version of a long retreat in the midst of our daily life. One teacher in Washington State, I think his name is, uh, it's, I think, Killam Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher. He has, he's invited some of his students to do a 100-day retreat. So I would like to invite any of you who would be willing to sign on to a 100-day retreat. How many of you would be interested in a 100-day retreat in the middle of your daily life? So I know that your hesitation is wise. But I have a feeling once I describe what I have in mind, more of you will raise your hands. What's that? Make the description. Not clear exactly. exactly. It's not the description's not clear. This one hundred day retreat would be uniquely yours. It wouldn't look like anyone else's. And it would be it would take a shape that would would have only as much structure as you need to keep the flame of awakening happening. Keep the flame of mindfulness and, and uh, sensitivity and just general wakefulness alive through the day. And 
ultimately through 100 or something you could sustain for 100 days. So one idea would be to have four short sitting periods every day. Something that would be, that would structure the day. So that something that you don't do in the course of your everyday life uh, in general, but so something that would be a little bit of a stretch or an added intention into your everyday life. I like the idea of four short sitting periods. And the length of the sitting periods would be up to you. But four times a day, you put your tush on the cush. And you do some practice. And that's where it can also get quite interesting. For many of you, this will also be very individual, for many of you, it, would be, it will be enough simply to sit down, to step out of your normal, ideally, in, with the intention of stepping out of your normal preoccupations, the normal momentum of your life, and just to sense what it's like to be present. To, how you, how you, what you do in that time will, is really not as important as the fact that you're doing it. For many people, it will simply mean to put your mind in the same location as your body so that you want to do body awareness because the body is always here. So that if you just did nothing but sit and know you were sitting. Some of you may want to do mindfulness of breathing, have a primary anchor. Some of you may simply want to unfurl your mind and simply be empty and open to whatever presents itself. No form at all, really. Kind of a formless presence. Some of you may want to have much more, a much busier practice four times a day. And that might be in the form of very active forgiveness practice, active loving kindness practice, active compassion practice, active gratitude practice, uh, active um, body sweeping might be one. How many of you, as I speak now, are interested in committing to 100 days of this? Less. Oh, a few more. (laughs) Getting better. What did you do on the 100th first day? Start again. Oh, heck, he's fierce. Start again. The question was, what do you do on the 101st day? And Larry said, start again. I know I repeat things a lot here. I think of myself as a one-note Johnny. <laughs> the note and the note I like to play over and over is is stay where you are, be here, and don't stray away from this moment. And that implicit in that is that if you devote yourself to being here, whatever it is that makes you conscious, you have everything, you have all the qualities that you need in your um, in your in your wisdom heart heart mind you have everything that you need to function uh, beautifully and with a lot less suffering if you really devote yourself to um, to presence and the Buddha really emphasized this message that these 
moments that you have, this very short and precious life and this precious human birth. I think we talked about the precious human birth last week. The idea that this being born as a, in the human realm is a, a very rare event and it's very difficult to arrive here and it's also very easy to, to leave, <laughs> very easy to lose this life. And within this very lifetime there is a, there is a, the perfect, there are the perfect ingredients to enough friction but enough pleasure to create the fuel, the impetus to develop our understanding and it is unique to the human plane that our difficulties can become the cause of freedom that if depending on what we do with them if we meet them with a lot of consciousness and compassion that our difficulties become the food become the tenderizing elements of our life and they become the cause of awakening and that's very wonderful it's a beautiful thing most people I know are quite grateful for their people who have practiced a lot not always in the middle of a struggle it's really hell we enter into hell realms all the time but if we really work with it with a lot of consciousness there's often a a, a deepening gratitude for that which um, was really difficult I did this weekend on screenwriting and meditation some of you were there but at the end of the day I read, or actually I didn't read, we, Catherine Flaxman, the woman I was doing it with, and I both read these little vignettes from these 12-year-old kids, who, one who had leukemia, the other one had, they had some kind of cancer, and how each of them had used it uh, and transformed it really into a, something that they were, uh, they felt grateful for. That possibility is always available. So the Buddha emphasized over and over that it is possible for us to awaken. And that he said that if this was not possible, I would not ask you to do so. He also emphasized that everything we do, everything we do in our mind, everything we do with our bodies, everything that comes out of our mouth, is a is an action it's a karma and that it's a seed that is being planted every single thing every moment that's not to scare you it is kind of frightening though <laughs> that every one of these actions of body speech and mind is a seed that produces some kind of reverberation some kind of result some kind of fruit and If one, uh, if one acts in ways that are really unwise, we get the fruit of a lot of a lot of unhappiness. Now, many of us, all of us, act in ways that are unwise and think in ways that are unwise and speak in ways that are unwise. Every single person here, and every person here, I don't think that there is an exception, knows the effects of having spoken thought or acted in ways that were unwise. Is there anyone here who hasn't had that experience? We all understand karma in real time. 
in the, in the effects of our action in our lives. Our actions also have long-term effects that, that, are, that are not so easy to see. And I don't really know how to explain that. But I can feel the undercurrent of certain addictions and certain habits. And I see the way that they chronically orient my life in certain habitual ways that actually keep me in some ways from uh, feeling home, okay. Especially the ones, because I'm, I'm what would classically be called the grasping type. I tend to, over not so much nowadays, but in the past, I'm one of those people that just loves to, to have experiences, loves to go places, loves to buy things, loves to, all those things. And what that, what that has those seeds of all those actions of my thoughts of my of my actions have it's produced over time a habit of toppling forward kind of obsessed a little bit I, i'm really speaking more and more about the past than i am about my present experience but a tendency toward toppling forward into the imagined future thinking that the future will make me happier than i am any of you have that issue? Thank you. I was feeling all alone there for a minute. And for many of you, you may be called the, classically called the aversive type, where your way of finding relief has been to, to um, try to make the world safe for yourself by, by striking out at everything that's not not so uh, that you don't like and spending devoting a lot of mental and sometimes physical time planning and then acting out uh, revenge or <laughs> or some kind of some kind of aversive irritated just a kind of habitual complaint almost the just a stance. I think that when I drive by, I, I drive a lot, as many of you do around here, and I think that I'm most struck in the course of my life, both on sidewalks and in cars, by the people whose jaws are set in a kind of... <clears throat> you can almost feel the, the fruit of being the aversive type and of course it's very innocent people don't plan they don't start out wanting to be an aversive type but somehow we end up that way and then there are there are those who habitually inclined toward delusion or dullness or confusion they just do incline towards spacing out checking out clueless and how much confusion tends to lead to this feeling a chronic feeling of doubt I'm just not getting it. Everybody else is getting it. There's something I'm missing. Any of you ever feel that one? So greed, hatred, and ignorance. These are not accidents. This is the, these are the result of actions of body, speech, and mind. Just the tendencies. And we may not be able to do much about our general tendency, but we can, we can also plant the seeds that reverse or loosen these tendencies of mine. 
lighten that, that load that leads us to a feeling that we're not quite at home here. And we do that by practicing mindful attention. So the Buddha said, if, you, if this wasn't possible to reverse this tide, I wouldn't ask you to do it. So, so it's every day, I think, as part of a hundred-day retreat, would be to reflect on that your actions matter, that they produce results. And to really reflect on what kinds of results that you would like in your life. And having given you my prelude, I'm hoping that some of you feel uh, connected to, uh, enlivened by the possibility of, of, a, of celestial music coming into your dharma time. <laughs> enlivened by the possibility of awakening, of a, a true awakening to your deepest nature. And to be able to live from a place of trust and openness and responsiveness to live as Ashvagosa, I think his name, to live rather than a, a life of self, of me and mine, but a, rather a life of truth. I think I, I have his passage here that I th- maybe since we've run out of time, I'll, I'll end by reading Ash, Ashvagosa. I'll read Ashvagosa and then I'll read a little Hafiz and we'll be on our way. We'll talk more about it next week. I don't think we can really get into the nuts and bolts now. This is called Living in the World by Ashvagosa. The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha requires every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one's heart, to give up one's thirst for pleasure. I don't mean give up pleasure. I mean craving that state of, of continual chronic dissatisfaction. To give up one's search for pleasure and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, or officers of the king, or, re- <laughs> or retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of religious meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if, like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water but remains untouched by the mud, They engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred. And if they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. This really does stand alone as, to me, a great inspiration, but I'll just punctuate it with the words of the great ecstatic poet Hafiz, where he says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You have the genius to build a swing in your backyard for the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I will help you with my divine lyre and drum. 
Hafiz will sing a thousand words you can take into your hands like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teak wood, strong silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So let's just close our eyes for a moment. Start warming ourselves up for our 100-day retreat. We won't start until next Tuesday when we can flesh out the details. Unless, of course, you want to. But in the meantime, as part of our practice, part of what I think connects us, gladdens our hearts, helps, or can help, uh, helps gladden other people's hearts, we consider whatever has occurred here tonight, just our coming together, our happiness hour, uh, the joy of being together, any, any wisdom that came to us during our sitting, anything that you may have uh, learned or benefited by from any of the teachings, anything, any benefits, any fruits, any merit, any blessings that have uh, risen from our practice, we always remember to gather it together and spread it around, send it out as a, a gigantic blessing, touching all beings in all circumstances, above, below, and all around, and sent with a deep wish that all beings can have more happiness in their lives and the causes of happiness increasing, that all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing, that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness, our true nature, here and now, and not look for anything but this. And a deep wish that all beings at least can grow in serenity and equanimity, being able to meet the the inevitable joys and the inevitable sorrows uh, with more balance, less reactivity, more humor, and a deep wish that our life, our practice today and every day uh, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all of us. May all beings be free. So please, this week, I, I urge you to think about what your 100-day retreat would look like. And I would like to, we, could all, we can do it in such a way where wh- whoever commits to it, we can find a, a space to check in. It might be even before the sitting group, uh, or we might have some kind of in- interview meeting at some point along the line but some way that we really practice together for 100 days with a lot of intention. And I'm really into it, uh, if anybody wants to join me. You know, I've let my practice become much more informal, and it would be fun to, to uh, do a retreat in daily life. 
So thanks for your practice. Just a reminder once again that the uh, room costs us $150. As much as you can offer freely as Donna, as generosity to support the room rental, it's a, it's a pretty good nut and there are lots of ways to offer it. On the website, missiondharma.org, you can, you can give through PayPal, you can put money in the basket, you can write checks to the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church and put Mission Dharma at the bottom and it makes it tax deductible, you can leave cash, etc., etc. And then as far as teaching here, offered in the same way freely, the invitation for you to offer teacher Donna, generosity, much appreciated, lets this class keep going, lets me keep doing it, and, but it's, um, and it's a good practice of generosity, but it's entirely up to you, and thanks for both room rental Donna and teaching Donna. And last but not least, Remember my two retreats coming up, one the 7th to the 12th of December, Insight Meditation Retreat with Mary Grace Orr at Spirit Rock, and then again the Essential Dharma Retreat, January 4th through the 9th. And those are um, great opportunities to, even in the midst of your 100-day retreat, to do a little intensive practice. So thanks, and hope to see you. What's that? I can't, oh, and there's a sign up for the email list also. And the other option for the email list, if you haven't been getting stuff, is to go onto the website and sign up again if you're not getting it. And make sure that you put your personal email and not your corporate or university because it, the spam filters will, will uh, devour them. Anyway, good luck. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.